Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We are kicking things off this morning by talking to our Scott Chance because what we're going to be talking about is so outrageous that I wanted to get started. Good morning, Scott. Hi, how are you? I am good, thank you. I have to tell you, Scott, I've spent quite a time with quite a few chefs over the years Mm -hmm. because in my previous life I used to host a cooking show. So obviously I've talked to a lot of different chefs, worked with them, cooked dishes with them, and nobody, I mean nobody ever used the appliance that we're about to talk about to cook a steak. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, I think in chef world, kind of sacrilege. It's taboo, To talk yes. about using a microwave for almost anything, that being the kitchen appliance, the microwave, for anything, let alone, Simi, for cooking steak, which is kind of like the, you know, the... the the, the meat by which all other meat will be judged. And it is, a lot of people would tell you there is a definite way to do it. So this person that you talk to tells us that the best way to cook a steak is in the microwave? Well, that's part of it. That's a big part of it. Yes, he uses the microwave as part of his procedure. And it's a little more complicated than that, as uh, we'll hear in just a second. But the important thing to remember is that the person that I talked to, his name is Dr. George Vikinis. He's the director of research at the Natural Research Center, Democritos. And he's the author of this new book called Physics in the Kitchen. He is not first a chef. He is first a scientist and a researcher, which is something that chefs, I view chefs more as like artists, right? And so this is, this is kind of putting like a scientific spin on it, but it is quite interesting. So I got a chance to speak with him and I basically just asked him, we're, we're microwaving steak. Is this, is this how we're cooking steak now? Well, the question, the, the point of course is that you don't only microwave it. Microwaving is only purely to warm up the, to heat up the inside to a temperature where it will kill any any uh, bacteria that perhaps there. And so, in order to ex- to to, uh, to ensure that, what you do the full process would be to fry the meat slightly, steak slightly, on both sides to seal it without salt. A lot of people actually advocate that our salt is very important, and uh, you know, the top chefs say that. But I don't believe that. Uh, salt is a desiccating material. It dry, draw, dry, well, it dries it out and draws out uh, liquids, the, the, the juices from inside. So eventually, you end up frying with the juices instead of the, the meat itself. Well, it's a bit complicated. Anyway, and then after about a minute on each side, then you stick it in the microwave for one minute only to make sure that the inside is cooked. And then I bring it back onto the frying pan and um, cook it again another one or two minutes in, in, uh, in butter or a little bit of olive oil. And that's when, at, at the end of that, that's when I add the salt and the lemon, you know, we, we use a lot of lemon over here, and it becomes a very nice thick uh, gravy. Okay, so I see we don't actually cook. I mean, you're just you, so you could so you do a little bit in the pan, both sides in the mic, then a minute in the microwave to warm up the inside, then back exactly. in the pan. Okay, I got yeah. it. What has the reaction been like to people finding out that that you know you want to cook their steak in in a microwave? No, 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 no ways. I mean, I I like my um, mailed reaction. You know, there's no question about it. I like the browning. I like the gravy in the in the pan in the uh, yeah the frying pan. No, no, the microwave is purely as a, as a security thing because uh, steaks, especially if they're thick, like an inch steak or uh, you know two centimeters, they they, they do need uh, to make sure that you need to make sure that you know it's cooked inside. It, uh, that's the main reason for microwave. Microwave is extremely useful because it penetrates deep 
He penetrates a centimeter, centimeter and a half. And uh, so with the result that you actually cook the inside and the outside, you, you leave it for the frying pan, yeah. Okay, sure. And then you still salt it afterwards. How did you come up with this method of using a microwave? Oh, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a researcher. I'm a physicist. I do experiments. <laughs> I, you know, for a long time I was following the general advice that, you know, you have to salt the steaks and everything. And most, many a time they, they would come out uh, tough and they would come out wrong and they would come out um, with less, the less of the juice that I expected. And I thought to myself, hang on a second, why are they doing that? Let's, you know, let's experiment. And eventually I realized that the salt you need only near the end. Actually, while it's still in the frying pan, I put some coarse salt or fine salt. And then I add, at the same time, I add a little bit of butter and a little bit of lemon. And I, I actually cook it within the gravy. So, and I take it out of the pan while the gravy is, is inside there, and it's fantastic. Especially, this is ideal, for, of course, for beef. But uh, pork can also work with that. And, uh, yeah, the, the, the salt is uh, desiccating. You need to avoid that in the beginning. That's my opinion. Okay. Now, uh, is this how you actually cook your steak at home when you're making a steak? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, de- definitely. We most of them because we actually follow the Mediterranean diet. So we don't eat a lot of red meat. You know, red meat is rare. Maybe perhaps once a month we have a beef steak or something like that, but, you know, just for a, <laughs> for a special occasion. And a couple of other times perhaps we have pork. But uh, generally we eat the Mediterranean diet, which is very healthy, and I think, you know, it's highly recommended to everyone. A lot of legumes, uh, fruit, vegetables, and all that. Um, yeah, uh, meat, uh, when, it, when we do want meat, uh, you know, we try to make a point of, of doing it the way I described it. Okay. And when you have uh, people uh, over and you're serving steak, what, how, do, how do those guests react when, you, when they see that you're oh, putting their steak? Oh, absolutely. They all, you know, they all love it. I mean, the way I do it, actually, when you cut it, it's medium or medium rare inside, and it essentially melts in the mouth. You know, try it out, and you'll say, you'll you'll remember me. Yeah, absolutely. I think we will. I think we will have to try it out. And let me ask you this, because uh, you know, we we most people think steak, and they cook, they want to cook it on the barbecue. You don't ever barbecue steak. The barbecue is the same thing. You got to be very careful with the barbecue. Make sure there's no flame. I explain everything in the book. You know, and uh, you know the the, the the physics in the kitchen book. And it's available everywhere. You're available Amazon in your place as well. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, and the barbecue is be very careful because the same problem. If you have a flame, you're going to get other uh, cyclic uh, hydrocarbons, aromatics, which are dangerous. You know, I explain everything. But um, generally, a uh, barbecue would make it a little bit drier. So it has to be. It's better to be, do it on a plate. You know, if you have a barbecue with a with a metal plate, then it's generally better for the for the meat. That's Dr. George Vakinas. He's director of research at the National Research Center. Democritos. His book is called Physics in the Kitchen. What do you think? Microwave the steak, Simi? I'm still a little bit speechless. It wasn't just the microwave the steak, because I kind of got what he was saying about warming up the interior, but some people like their steak blue, which mm-hmm. is cold on the inside, yes. right? Yes. So that would not work for those people. But I think the part that I was particularly horrified by was the don't salt your steak. Yeah, until the very end. He's okay with it at the end. But yeah, traditional uh, chef uh, knowledge would say, so I've heard people say salt it for 24 hours, like salt well, it, let it, it sit. because it draws out some of the moisture and you know, kind of tenderizes the steak a little bit. So I, like he's, a, he's obviously a physicist. He says that himself. He's not a chef. Right. But he has also practiced this. So I'm just, I kind of want to try this to well, see for myself. I do think that that is, you know, there has to be a, a, a you have to try a taste, taste test. test. Yeah. There, how, how else are we going to know? I don't know how we're going to know this. So what is your method for cooking a steak? I just put it on the barbecue and cook it for, you know, a couple minutes on either side, depending on how thick it is. And then I eat it. I'm, pre- I'm pretty straight up, pretty old school, you know? <laughs> Now, I know that a lot of chefs have told me that the best way to cook a steak, if like, yeah, I know people are very passionate about grilling it on the barbecue, but in reality, a hot cast iron pan yeah. is the best way to cook a steak. Yeah, yeah. And you have talked about this before. We talked about this with the, the burger thing. Yes. yes. That you don't want the flame to touch it. Uh, you don't I, want the yeah. juice to run out of it. You want it to retain, you want to sear some of that. And the best way to do that is a hot 
cast iron pan. But you don't get the grill marks, Simmy. It's oh, all about the about grill, you grill marks. marks. You got to have that. The aesthetics matter. So he, I just don't know if anybody would take a steak. And steaks are so expensive these yes. days. Yes, yes. And say, can you imagine, first of all, not salting it and putting it on a plate and putting it in the microwave? For sure. And that's why I asked, could you, like, what, how do your guests react? Do they see you doing this? Because everybody has these open kitchens now, right? right? People are kind of standing around while you're cooking. It's in the middle of summer. You're having a grill. And you're like, oh, I'm just going to take this put it in the microwave. It just seems wrong. It does seem wrong. I, we've got to ask people about that. What is your method, foolproof method, the only way perhaps that you would cook a steak? Would you try this? Would you microwave a steak. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, it's time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. Good morning, Vaughn. Hey, good morning, Simi. I have to say that this one kind of caught me off guard. I didn't realize they were considering adding new areas for the speculation tax. Well, the government looks for new tar- Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I get to blame every day for the lack of progress on housing affordability. And uh, yeah, yesterday's announcement came as a bit of a surprise. They've added 13 communities to the speculation and vacancy tax. So you got a second place there. You have to rent it out for half the year or you have to pay the tax. Uh, a bit of a tweak in the strategy on the tax. When it was first announced by Carol James way back in 2018, she made it pretty clear that they weren't going after necessarily like recreational properties and communities that are tourist dependent and recreation dependent. Right. But it was I really that. aimed at it was aimed at people that have, you know, a second place in Vancouver and they live in Victoria or they've got, you know, a backup place in one of the big cities. And they made a point of leaving some of the major resort recreational communities out of the list. So yesterday, however, we get, you know, the list is not, we're, we've moved well beyond urban British Columbia. So where you got Courtney, Comox, Cumberland, Parksville, Qualicum Beach, uh, and in the Okanagan, Vernon, Coldstream, Kamloops, well, Kamloops isn't in the Okanagan, but anyway, uh, Lake Country, Peachland, Summerland, and Salmon Arm. So those are places where... You know, if you ha- if people have a second place there, it's more about family vacations and holidays and less about having a second place to, to make money. But minister got asked about this. Katrina Conroy, uh, the finance minister, Simi, got asked about this yesterday and what kind of support does she have? And initially she said, well, you know, we consulted with the communities. We didn't just, you know, throw these Willy names out Willy nilly do this, yeah. And, uh, and there was support. And a couple of my colleagues in the press conference said, you sure about that? And she said, well, I'll double check and get back to you. <laughs> this is clearly really? a really well thought through thing. Yeah. The ministers were very well briefed. Well, it turns out, of course, that uh, you got people coming forward saying they weren't consulted. The mayor of Penticton was out within the hour saying we weren't consulted in Penticton. And while we support the idea of more affordable housing, this is going to have an impact on our community, Simi, because, of course, Penticton is one of the big places in British Columbia for recreational property, and they weren't consulted. Uh, Parksville said they weren't consulted, and by the time you know that the hour was out, uh, the ministers claim that he had she had you know consulted on this and had secured support for it was somewhat frayed. This seems like such a a really basic mistake to make. Like to say that communities were consulted when they weren't consulted, wouldn't that be a baseline for doing something like this? Like, wouldn't you at yeah. least? pick up the phone and call the mayors and say, by the way, this is coming your way? Well, not long after the press release from the mayor of Penticton saying he wasn't consulted, we got a press release from the New Democrats that explained the real reason for doing this. They put out a press release saying uh, BC United would get rid of the speculation and vacancy tax. They're opposed to it. Simi, this is about polarizing the electorate, uh, 
pointing fingers at uh, people that, you know, you got a second property, you're not going to have a huge amount of support from the public that's worried about housing affordability. Uh, polarizing the electorate, pointing fingers at BC United. And by the way, if some communities are collateral damage in that, well, so be it. The, the government is in re-election mode. And frankly, but, Simi, I don't think it much cares. Um, they just did to these communities exactly what the federal liberal government did to them a couple of weeks ago. Uh, yes, that's, <laughs> well, you know, what are the limits on hypocrisy? Can, yeah. can you really be too cynical right? in the business we're in? And... <laughs> I guess not, but I thought, boy, that just changes how I look at that from a couple of weeks ago. They just did it completely well, to a, a bunch of mayors. Yeah. Well, you had the, you know, the ombudsman on, uh, yes. this week, Jay Chalk put out his report and he said, you know, the government didn't really... Uh, let people know that it did change the rules on the uh, COVID assistance package. And uh, and uh, he said, you know, he finds it ironic that the provincial government is complaining about the federal government and its handling of this, and the provincial government is doing the same thing. So, oh, man. It's, <laughs> it's got, tough doing your what job What would we talk about well. if it weren't for government hypocrisy? I guess so. This one is just seems so yeah. um, outrageous. It wouldn't have cost them anything maybe a day to get a hold of some of these mayors and just so you could say that you consulted them, but who lets the minister or why does the minister go out there without at least double checking that? Well, you know, if we could get our hands on the uh, internal emails in the government on this and how they put together the schedule for announcements, we might discover why this was announced yesterday as opposed to some other day. Basically, the New Democrats are on an announcement a day mode around their housing action plan. And a lot of what they're announcing isn't going to happen right away. The, the, the effect of all of this, even if it works, uh, won't necessarily play out between now and the election. They'll still be able to talk about it and be able to polarize the electorate around it. And the other thing to note about speculation and vacancy taxes, whatever you think of it, as a strategy, it has proven to be a pretty good cash cow for the government. It's mm. raised hundreds of millions of dollars because, you know, some people out there go, all right, fine, I'm just going to pay it. I'm not renting my place out. Uh, the other thing the minister said yesterday, Simi, which, you know, may be of interest to people in this position is she said there may be exemptions for people who have recreational places that aren't really suitable for renting out the year round. Cabins, uninsulated properties, uh, that sort of thing. She didn't really say how that would work, but she did suggest right. there may be something in the works down the road before this is incorporated in the next budget in February um, that would allow you to uh, plead for an exemption because your place isn't really suitable for renting out all year because nobody would rent it. And so it would be unfair to tax you when there is no market for that place. Right. But just the hypocrisy is astounding on this one. All right. We are back talking with Vaughn Palmer this morning and we have a BC Ferries update for you, Vaughn. Yes, Simi, it's been a bad year on the major routes on BC Ferries. Uh, a lot of cancellations, vessels out of service, no backup vessels. And so the Ferry Corporation has announced this week they are looking for expressions of interest for building six new ferries for the major routes. These would be big ships, 2,000 passenger capacity, so same scale as the Spirit class. And they uh, are going to, when they get their expressions of interest, they're going to try to award tenders for construction by next summer. Uh, all cause for celebration there, Simi. Oh, these would be hybrids too. They're, they're not uh, just diesel, they're diesel battery. So definitely Ferry Corporation looking to the future. However, the listener who is planning on taking the ferries in the next little while shouldn't get too excited Simi, if all goes well, and when has it ever not all gone well at BC Ferries? That's a big F, yeah. <laughs> the first of these six ships will be in service in six years, 2029, 
And number six would be in service 2032. So it's a 10-year plan to build six ships and a number of hurdles that still have to be cleared before we get to actual delivery of the ship. It's interesting about where this call is going out to. It's like shipyards everywhere. Yeah, you know, you go back to the NDP in opposition and their line was always, you know, uh, you should be building the ships in British Columbia because it creates jobs and economic activity here. And why should we be sending our money overseas or out of the country? Uh, This call is to shipyards all over the world. And so it's uh, roughly what happened under the BC Liberals. You'll I'm guessing get bids as has happened in the past. Uh, what we had Poland building ships, Romania building ships, the Germans building ships. Uh, there are the, the Finns sometimes get interested in this as well. And I see one comment from the industry to the Victoria Times columnist, someone in the industry saying they think the overseas yards will get the contracts because they can just build the ships more cheaply. If you build here in BC, and this is what used to be said under the BC Liberals, you build here in BC, you get fewer ships for more money. Um, so I think, you know, we, we don't know yet what conditions. They, they do if, uh, if, for example, a foreign yard were to make a partnership with a BC yard or a BC yard would come close in the bidding, uh, you might see one of the ships built here, but the way things are going these days, I think the government's already dropped a few hints that, yeah, they kind of expect that these ships will be built overseas. Hmm, interesting. And then that, that's the, it's the availability, really, right? And that yeah. everybody is in that same boat. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we do build some ships in Canada here, heavily subsidized. Uh, you can look to Washington State. I was just there, you know, and I noticed a story in the Seattle paper saying that, I don't know, almost a third of the Washington State ferry fleet is out of service. The fleet is antiquated, and in Washington State, you have to build new ships in Washington State, and it's very expensive because, you know, if your yard builds ships all the time for customers around the world, you end up being fairly efficient. Uh, You can bid competitively. Uh, You're modern and updated, and while British Columbia shipyards do do a lot of work on ships here, Uh, So far, they've not been able to compete on price with the foreign yards that, as I say, are just more competitive and more efficient. Right. And also on a note, as we head into an election year coming up in 2024, we're starting to hear from some politicians who aren't going to run again. Yeah, and there was a sad announcement in the House yesterday. You may remember that a year ago this time, Katrina Chen, who was the cabinet minister for child care announced that she had asked Premier Eby to leave her out of his cabinet. She said she was dealing with a history, personal one, of gender-based violence. She wanted to spend more time with her son, and therefore she'd asked to be left out of cabinet. Um, Sad story. Uh, She asked for privacy, so, you know, the details have not been shared publicly, but I think most number of news organizations have had a, a personal briefing on confidential basis on the struggle that Chen faced. Uh, yesterday, private member statements in the House, she started off by saying uh, farewell to her colleagues. She's been working from home. So she did this on the Zoom hookup and she's not running again. She thanked the Premier's office for the support. She said she'd been able to make very good use of the year. Uh, to seek professional help for her own trauma, spend much more time with her son. Uh, She was looking forward to the next step in her life, but she wasn't running again. Outpouring of support in the house. It's a general recognition, Simi, this is a very sad story. She was an effective minister of childcare. She's very good at her job. And it's it's a loss to the government, a loss to public life that she's not running again, but you have to respect her for doing it. It's a big sacrifice, but, you know, she says herself she thinks she's making the right decision, and I would be the last to argue yeah. with her. Uh, she knows the personal reasons better than, than I could hope to. Now, she was the minister in charge of the child care file when the yeah. Horton government was really going all out in child yeah. care. Yeah, and, you know, it, it, relatively inexperienced in politics, uh, and... What I was struck was every time it came up in the House and the opposition would, you know, be challenging the government. You've made great promises on childcare. You haven't made much progress. She's very good 
at defending the government's record on the file. She clearly knew it very well. I don't think there's any question that she would be a minister in David Eby's government if she had chosen to stay with him. In fact, there was a lot of speculation that she might be promoted. Um, mm. Childcare is a minister of state, so not a full-blown ministry. That she might have been promoted, for example, to the, become the minister of children and family development instead of Mitzi Dean, but that right. didn't happen. And now she's leaving the political arena and, you know, you have to wish her well. But Absolutely. It, it's, it's just a sad story to see someone have to leave for reasons that have nothing to do with her politics and her professional performance. That's true. But we wish her all the best. Vaughn, thank you. Bye bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. What happened yesterday at Rainbow Bridge? This is a Niagara Falls border crossing. There was an explosion there. And then it just seemed like the narrative, the media, everything kicked into overdrive with speculation. A lot of that initial reporting, though, had to be walked back by some news outlets later. There was concern that this was a terrorist attack. And then we find out it was really not. It was anything but. We're going to get all the details now on how this unfolded and what happened and what we know with Reggie Giacchini, our Washington correspondent for Global News. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, so what do we know about what happened? Well, we know uh, that it was a white vehicle traveling at a high rate of speed, uh, you know, possibly starting from within the vicinity of uh, a casino that's just a couple of blocks away from the Rainbow Bridge. Uh, And then from the security uh, camera footage we've seen and from the witnesses that have discussed it, um, they saw the vehicle travel very quickly. Uh, It went airborne after hitting uh, a median and a guardrail. Um, and ultimately, as it landed, it, 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 it drove into or at least landed into, um, you know, some part of the border complex there uh, and exploded. And you're right. Uh, there were some outlets, uh, some conversations immediately jumped into the conversation about terrorism. You know, we can talk about that, you know, in a little bit. But at the end of the day, that's only because the FBI came out earlier this week and discussed the fact um, that there is a, a higher risk for some kind of incident this week and in the weeks ahead. So everybody was a little bit on edge. But at the end of the day, FBI's turned this over to Niagara Falls police. And this is now being treated as a traffic incident. Right. Okay. It took some time, though, right? Because some some media, oh, that's like Fox News was on the air for hours uh, talking about a terrorist attack from Canada. And I think on this side of the border, people were going, what? What's what's happening right now? Yeah, I mean, look, it wasn't just Fox News. There were some other outlets that were running uh, on on assumptions here that this was some form of terrorist attack. And you're right. Fox News did jump on that very quickly with a reporter saying that they were getting credible information from law enforcement sources. You know, at the beginning of one of these kinds of incidents, the, the first thing that people jump to, especially in an area like the border, um, is that it's going to be linked to terrorist activity. Uh, but, you know, I spoke to to some senior White House officials earlier in the day, um, you know, kind of in the hours after this happened. And, and the White House was pushing back to say, look, don't follow in the footsteps of things that we don't know about right now. We don't know the circumstances. We don't know, um, you know, even when they were talking about incendiary ex- uh, uh, devices at the vehicle, uh, you know, some stations went with that and, and ultimately it forced them to walk back. And what that does is, is lead to kind of public doubt into the reporting here, because some people were essentially trying to almost sensationalize what the incident was. Right. There was like this race to get information on the air and even law enforcement can be speculating, but then it just kind of gets out of control. Yeah. And I mean, look, you know, we've been in this business long enough to know, get the information right. Don't get it right fastest. Uh, And and law enforcement, of course, they're going to come out and and they're going to give their best guesses as to what things might be. But that's, of course, the law enforcement um, way of approaching something. You know, the fact that this happened at a border meant that this was going to have a significantly higher number of law enforcement personnel dispatched to it, including JTTF, which is, you know, part of the FBI here, Um, you know, and they have to work through their procedures in order to be able to clear one step to clear the next step to find out who is going to be recalled and who this will ultimately be handed off to. You know, at the end of the day, now that this is nothing more than a traffic accident, a tragic traffic accident, the questions are going to be, how did this happen but because there's no, um, you know, the, the, the two people in the, in the vehicle, you know, aren't alive anymore, it, it's going to be much more difficult to try and piece this together, um, you know, and try to offer some kind of sense of closure to the community. Because if anyone hasn't been there, the Rainbow Bridge, you know, that's, that's almost my backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it basically is a neighborhood that just kind of opens up 
into a bridge here. So there are a lot of residential areas that are right around this bridge and people quite legitimately were concerned. Right. Okay. It didn't take long for this to be a part of the presidential campaign either, did it? Uh, well, I mean, look, <laughs> of course, it's, it's going to be a part of a presidential campaign because you had some members of the Republican Party start to jump to say, look, this is why we have problems with our borders. Uh, there were a number of Republicans, both in the race and kind of outside politics, trying to get back into politics. Someone like, you know, Carrie Lake from the southwestern U.S., um, you know, trying to blame this on failed policies uh, of President Joe Biden, trying to use it to their own advantage. And when they have outlets that are kind of pushing secondary narratives that aren't correct, um, this really can start to to kind of skew the public's perception as to what went on, uh, which is why law enforcement and why the governor of, of New York, Kathy Hochul, came out last night around five o'clock local time to say, look, we need to ensure you this was not terrorism related and then, you know, made a point of saying we want the world to understand that this was not some crisis that we let get out of hand. This was an unfortunate accident. Um, You know, don't take that and run with it to suit your own kind of narrative and comment. Right. Well, they were good about coming out relatively quick, as soon as they possibly could. It seemed like it was like a roller coaster ride of information that was coming out yesterday. Sure. And I think that they wanted to get the upper hand on it as quickly as they could. I mean, look, this was a big Um, you know, this was a big scene. I don't want to say a crime scene, but this was a big scene here because the car where it exploded, the the impact took place at the border crossing on the U.S. side, but it spread across a number of different boots. And, you know, the the reconstruction team um, is still trying to work to put things together. So they, 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 they very clearly didn't want to come out and provide wrong information with the exception of the things that they absolutely knew based on the security footage and based on the realities of things like when is this border ultimately going to open here but to be able to come out within five or six hours with definitive information of this was not terrorist activity we're not even calling this an accident we're calling it an incident um you know kudos to 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 law enforcement and government officials for coming out to get that out quickly they certainly did all right reggie thank you so much for explaining it to us Thank you. Appreciate that. That's Reggie Cicchini, our Washington correspondent for Global News, breaking down what happened yesterday with this Rainbow Bridge situation. If you were following the news and it was changing every minute, it was unfortunate that it seemed the information, the speculation seemed to spiral out of control. There's still an investigation going on here, but right now it's focused on what happened with this vehicle. Why did it launch itself into the air at that high rate of speed and then crash and explode in such a way? Uh, They're still trying to work on the identification of the two people who were killed. So there's more information to come, but it is not what some of the initial reporting and and information that was coming out said it was. It was not terrorist-related. Government officials have been very clear now in saying that. Still some questions about how it happened as well. Uh, And of course, we'll update you on that situation. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk this morning about someone who is really making a difference out there. Because every day, Brock McGillis is trying to make life better for kids who play hockey. How is he doing this? By visiting 100 youth minor hockey teams in 100 days to change attitudes and to make hockey more welcoming. Because it is not easy being gay in the locker room, and and Brock would know. Brock McGillis is with us now. He's a leading activist in the LGBTQ plus space and the first openly gay male professional hockey player. Brock, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. What is this process like for you, sharing your experience with young hockey players? Um, I think ultimately each individual session is incredibly rewarding because you can feel the shifts. You can see it. I've been posting it all over social media. You see how the, these teenagers engage and, and want to talk and want to share and, and want the culture to evolve. So it's been pretty cool. The idea of a hundred and a hundred days is kind of daunting and some days I'm, I'm, I'm only just over a weekend, but I don't even know what day of the week it is. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine, too. Uh, is it difficult for you to share your experience about how you felt when it was you in that locker room? Honestly, initially, yes. Um, but I've been at this for approximately six years now. And after a while and lots of therapy, <laughs> uh, it just becomes like I'm telling a story. It's not, it it doesn't impact me the same way as it did initially. And, and also 
early on it was it was very therapeutic. Right. But now it's 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 just it's a story and I get to weave it and it's almost a little bit of not acting but but I feel like I'm performing up right. there. Would you mind telling us one of those stories like what was it like for you? I mean hearing language daily when you're trying to figure out who you are that is negative um, towards who you are, like like the homophobic language was rampant, is rampant. And it was like beating you down daily and slowly and making you think you're bad or wrong, that you don't belong, that you shouldn't exist. And made me feel less than, it made me feel like I, I couldn't be myself. And played the sport I love, and here's the reality is, as a hockey player at elite levels, it becomes your identity. I mean, you go home for the holidays, all your relatives are asking you about hockey, you go home in the off season, uh, friends, parents of friends, whoever you see is asking you about hockey, it becomes your your identity. And, and then my sexuality was something polar opposite to that. And grappling between those two and wrestling with it was a challenge. And I self-harmed, I drank heavily to numb it, and I really struggled. And so when you did decide that, you know what, I can't live like this anymore, did you have some assistance? Were there people you could confide in? Eventually, I, I, I sort of came out in, and I think most people do this, they, they come out in waves. So first I came out to Brendan Burke, who Brendan is the son of Brian Burke, who used to run the Canucks and ran a lot of NHL teams. And Brendan came out as gay in, in, in the sport and I reached out to him and came out to him. Um, from Brendan passed away tragically in a car accident about six months after we formed a really close friendship. And after that, I decided to come out to my family and all my friends who weren't in hockey, but it was steps, it was gradual. And then when I came out publicly, you know, it was, it was a whole new challenge. I mean, now I was doing media and press and speaking and it, it was just, uh, a whirlwind that has continued for about seven years. No kidding. So, Brock, do you think things have gotten better in professional hockey or not? I think today's generation is far more inclusive in theory. Like, their thoughts are more inclusive. They're right. more open to um, gay teammates, um, teammates of different faiths, you know, BIPOC folks, um, et cetera. Um, even stuff like mental health. I don't think their language and behaviors necessarily match their their thoughts. And I think that's what we need to evolve because um, they're, they're in a culture and in an environment that's so insular and they've been in it for so long that they've been programmed by people who came before them. So they may and not agree that, with what they're hearing, but they're still kind of playing along with the game. Totally. And I did it. So I get it. It, we shouldn't have to, and we shouldn't also have to adhere to the norms. Like, there's so much conformity in this culture. Hockey players dress the same, talk the same, walk the same. I mean, listen to any NHL interview. They all sound identical. They do. <laughs> you know, pucks in deep. And it's like, well, okay, there's more to you than that. And, and we need to start bringing it to the rink. No different than corporate culture. I mean, corporate culture has taught us that the more you can be yourself at work, the happier you're going to be, and the happier you are, the more productive you are. I wouldn't spark any different. So, Brock, where can people find out more information about the work that you're doing and maybe get you to come talk to their minor hockey team? Yeah, I'd love that. Uh, my website, brockmcgillis.com slash tour, has all the information there or on my social media, uh, Twitter and or X, I guess. And Instagram is brockmcgillis33 and they can reach out at their spot and We'll try and get them booked into the tour. Oh, let's hope so. Brock, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for sharing your story. That is Brock McGillis. Brock was a professional hockey player, now spends his time being a leading activist in the LGBTQ plus space. He is the first openly gay male professional hockey player. He's on a tour right now. It's the Culture Shift Tour. He's visiting 100 minor hockey teams, like youth minor hockey teams, in 100 days to talk to them about being themselves, to stop using homophobic language, to you know being more comfortable in the law. 
locker room. It's a great cause, and he's doing great work at that. This is Mornings with Simi. How comfortable are you with the self-checkout? Some people love it. Some people absolutely opposed to it. Well, what if stores started taking it one step further? What if you just loaded up your cart and left the store? The latest technology involves exactly that. It's called Just Walk Out technology. Will we be seeing this soon? Well, Doug Stevens is the founder and president of Retail Profit and joins us now. Good morning, Doug. Good morning. Doug, is this the next big thing? Well, yeah. Um, You know, you have to, I guess, get a little bit of context on sort of where we've come from and where we're headed with Just Walk Out. And you alluded to some of that in the introduction. But of course, you know, as consumers, we've we've been walking into this world lately where grocery retailers in particular are closing manned checkout lanes and they're putting in self-checkout. And the problem with self-checkout by virtue of consumer surveys is, yeah, great, I like the the option of being able to check myself out, but the problem is too often the self-checkout is problematic. Items that won't scan or things that I have to look up in some sort of an index and find the right product. And so what what in actual fact is happening is grocery retailers in particular are sort of offloading the labor of checkout onto the consumer without any real added convenience. So, uh, you know, in comes Amazon and says, look, why do we have a checkout at all? Why don't we just use a system of technology that allows the customer to walk in, scan their mobile device, and essentially take whatever they want and leave? And that is precisely what they have launched now. And they're installing this now in more and more places. Calgary and Toronto, for example, are going to see this technology uh, rolled out in stadiums, uh, high-volume venues, obviously, with loads and loads of consumers looking to buy things quickly between innings or periods. So it makes perfect sense to try and speed the checkup out uh, or the checkout up and, and get people in and out as quickly as possible. Okay, so then how does that work? You just So they're going to be doing it, obviously, in like a food court situation during a sports game of some kind. You just walk up, take what you want, and leave? Yeah, essentially, and this is where we run into another issue, which I'll explain in a moment. But essentially, the way the technology works today is you you enter the store or the food court or whatever the venue is, you scan your mobile device, and instantly then the store, in essence, recognizes you. So it now allows you to come in and through a series of technologies that include radio frequency identification tags, which are on the merchandise themselves, which sensors within the store can read. There are also sensors on the shelves. So when you remove something from the shelf, it detects that that item has been removed. And then there are also an intricate series of cameras in the ceilings of these stores, which are actually monitoring the movement of people and sort of amalgamating all this information. So products that are taken, the person that is taking them, uh, all of that is being read and understood by the store. And then as you approach the exit to the store, all of that is totaled up and uh, and it's charged to your app or to your device. And so it's a very intricate technological system. Now, it also has some pretty significant implications for privacy. Well, yeah. And in the U.S., I'm, so, I'm sorry, in the, in the U.S., this is now being litigated in some cases where group advocacy groups are saying, look, this is, this is dystopian. You know, you're, you're in essence, you're taking all this information from people and are they actually aware of what they're giving up in the, in the interest of convenience? And so what about the shoplifting equation in all of this? Uh, shoplifting is a huge concern right now for retailers. Using self-checkout, it seems to me, doesn't really help that situation. And having no checkout at all doesn't seem like that would help that situation either. Well, in actual fact, it, it's, it's kind of an advancement from a, from a loss prevention standpoint. And I'll explain what I mean. In, in a conventional self-checkout situation, as we have today in most grocery stores, 
they are really subject to tremendous amounts of loss, uh, just simply from people either not scanning an item and simply putting it in their bag, or scanning one item and then putting a different item in, in their shopping bag. And any way you cut it, there's, there's a tremendous liability there. And that's why we see human beings now often, you know, stationed at the checkout to actually kind of monitor what's going on. In a just-walk-out environment, you have so much technology that is literally following individuals through the store and monitoring everything from the items that they pick up and put back on the shelf to things that they take and put in their cart and all of these things being immediately itemized and recognized by the system it actually lends itself to a greater level of security and already retailers are now starting to embark on new technologies like AI for example which can actually be used to detect patterns of loss prevention. So if there are typical patterns of, of in-store theft or shoplifting, all of those now can sort of be, uh, can be registered within the system so that it's not only detecting who's taking what, who's paying for what, but who is stealing what from the store and actually adds a layer of security. But again, we're really kind of bumping up against this personal privacy issue well, yeah. Uh, for everyone in the store that isn't a shoplifter, um, it, it has serious implications for what we're availing to retailers. So does that mean that you, know, you wouldn't even be able to walk into a store to browse, that the store has to know who you are before you go into the store? Yeah, in the case of where this technology was initially rolled out was in Amazon Go stores. Amazon actually built a store format that was sort of the, the cornerstone of which was this just walk out technology. And so within those Amazon Go stores, you had to be an Amazon customer in order to even access the store. So you could have your Amazon app scanned at the entrance and be able to, to enter the store. So there has to be some sort of connection to a payment technology initially to allow you access to the store. Otherwise, the store really can't even recognize who you are, and that's kind of fundamental to the whole process. But Doug, what about people who maybe don't want a smartphone or don't want to be connected in that way? So what, we just can't shop? That could very well be the world that we're headed towards, yeah. Um, the whole idea of being able to go and shop in a completely anonymous way if indeed we, we continue to sort of move toward this world of uh, instant self-checkout, uh, that could in fact be the case, that we may need to have some form of a key, if you will, to access stores. And if Amazon has their way, that key, regardless of where you're shopping, will be the Amazon key, because they really want to make sure that they're installing this Amazon Go technology in as many locations uh, as, as they possibly can. It's a tremendously expensive technology. And so right from the beginning, there was always a suspicion that Amazon would not just simply keep this for themselves, but that they would try to really proliferate this on the open market and install it in as many retail locations as they could. But if it's so expensive, then at what point is it cheaper to just have real people in the store doing the checkout? It's a good question, and, and it's not, I don't think, uh, purely coincidental that the first places that we're seeing this actually being installed in a real way in Canada is in stadiums, because when you think about it, and you, you raise a really good point, what's the kind of the cost-benefit? Yeah. What's the break-even ratio on a, on a technology that's this expensive? But when you think about the situation in a stadium, for example, you know, you have these periods of intense rush on, on all of the food and concession stands, um, usually, you know, between innings or periods. And it's super, super important that during those periods of time that the stadium be able to allow for as much throughput as possible. What you don't want are people that say, you know, go back to their seats and say, the line was too long, I couldn't get what we needed, so whatever, forget it. You want as many people as possible to be able to buy. And so in that sort of a setting, I could see the payback being really, really fast on a technology like this because 
if you can boost your throughput by right. you know twenty thirty percent, that's a significant amount of revenue. Uh, that you now are collecting instead of sending back to the seats empty-handed. You know, you've given us a lot to think about this morning, Doug. Thanks so much for your time. Always a pleasure, Simi. Thank you. That's Doug Stevens, founder and president of Retail Profit. Yeah, would you shop at a store like that? This is Mornings with Simi. Every year, school districts try to calculate how many students are going to show up in September so they can plan accordingly. And most years in Surrey, the numbers are, are wrong and more, way more students actually show up. So the Surrey School District has averaged about 800 new students every year for the past 10 years. Some years, it's actually many more than that. And that's why there are hundreds of portables in the district. That's also why they are trying to find a way to better manage all of these students. So what are they thinking about doing? Well, joining us now is Ratinder Matthew, Associate Director of Communications in the Surrey School District. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Simi. So where, where is the process at right now? What is the district considering? So like you mentioned, we're just growing at a rate that's, that's very unsustainable. We were averaging around 800 new students every year for the past 10 years. And that in and of itself is, is sort of two, two elementary schools or one secondary school. But these last two years, we've actually averaged 2,400 new students annually. And so, you know, this level of growth isn't sustainable unless we find some long-term solutions to meet our capacity needs. And, and our preference is to build new schools and in additions to existing schools, but we need to find some additional strategies to help us manage that. Okay, so what are those additional strategies? So we sent out a survey to all parents on Monday with 12 strategies that we're considering, and we want, we want community feedback from our staff, from our parents, guardians, around these strategies. So this is busing students to a neighborhood school, hybrid online classes, dividing the school day into two separate shifts, um, so, you know, from 7.30 to 1.30 or 2 p.m. to 8 p.m., tri-semester schooling. So that would be, um, you know, students would have breaks at different points of the year. So some students would go from September to May, some December to August or May to December. And, you know, so these are all options that, that and, and others, you know, situating schools within residential, corporate, or community buildings. So these are all options that are, um, you know, we're still in the consideration phase, and a key part of that is getting that community input, having parents weigh in on, on options that work and don't work. And, and we know, you know, families have summer vacations, Christmas vacations, you know, kids have after-school jobs, there's sports. Uh, so there, there's a variety of things that we'll have to factor into all of these options, and, and this is the phase where we're doing all of that, and consultations are a key part of that. Is there also a realization here that, that what is being asked for or what's going on is just no longer sustainable? Like, you can build more schools, but it takes a long time. That process is, is just not working for Surrey. You know, our capital submission plan, which we submit like every school district in BC, we submit that in June of every year. And it's in March of the following year that we hear back from the Ministry of Education and Child Care on projects that have been funded. But we're not getting those that infrastructure built in our, our district right now. And so, you know, we'll continue to advocate for that funding. But in the meantime, we need to we need to find some additional strategies to help accommodate this growth. And, and our priority is ensuring that there's, you know, our, that we're able to provide quality education to our students. And so that's our first priority. And, you know, we're considering a number of options um, in line with that while we continue to advocate for funding. So what is this consultation process like? You said you sent out this survey. How is this going to work? So we sent out the survey on Monday, and it's, it's an online survey um, translated in multiple languages. So parents can complete a survey in the language of their choice. And, um, and each of these options is presented to them, and they, they can choose, you know, how they feel about each one. And then there's also some open-ended fields where they can share some, some additional feedback. Following this, in early December, we'll be doing um, in-person consultations. So one of the options that parents get during the survey is, are you interested in attending one of these in person? And then we'll contact them directly and have them attend one of these. We're also doing in-person consultations in December with students. So we'll have um, secondary students uh, in grades 10, 11, and 12, and we'll be presenting these options to them and gathering their feedback on them. And some students are familiar with some of these. You know, we've, we've done delayed starts or extended days, you know, just by an hour where we, to manage growth at some schools already. And we've done hybrid um, online classes during the pandemic. So students will be familiar with some of these, but we want to gather their feedback on these as well and answer any questions they have. I'm wondering, where did you gather some of these suggestions from? Are these things that you have found other districts employ, perhaps in other jurisdictions? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so some of these, you know, we've 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 um, implemented to some degree in our district. Um, others, you know, that we've done a lot of research as well. You know, there are hybrid online classes in in other jurisdictions around the world where they've um, implemented this to really, um, you know, and it's been very successful. And so we're looking at all of that, and and community consultation is is a critical piece of that as well. You know, what what works in one jurisdiction might not work here in Surrey, so we want to hear from families as well. Do you know, or have you been able to calculate, like how many new schools does Surrey need at this point? Yeah, so every, like I mentioned, we submit our capital plan every June. And so the June 2023 plan, which looks forward to 2025, that plan we submitted 16 new additions, nine new schools, and six, and sorry, 10 site acquisitions. So that's that was our request to the ministry. And, and one of the things to mention, you know, this list, we've been submitting it every year, and it, it is getting longer as, as Surrey is getting bigger. So, you know, we do need investment. We need new schools and additions. But I think our district also needs to find some other mitigation strategies to help manage this growth. Right. That's what I was wondering then. Is it also a realization that there's just no way this number of schools could can be built fast enough to deal with the population? Yeah. Well, there, there's some other, you know, in this survey, one of the things that we're presenting is prefabricated modular additions or schools. And that was, you know, we had an announcement last week, which we're very excited about. This would be, you know, a cluster of classrooms in one structure with bathrooms there and, and some, some additional spaces like multi-purpose spaces. So that was very exciting news. And we'd love to see more of that in our district. And the other is, you know, situating schools within residential, corporate or community buildings. You know, if you look at the Fleetwood Corridor, once the SkyTrain comes in, that expansion, there's going to be enormous growth and a lot of families are going to be moving into that area and so to help accommodate that growth because developers have already purchased all of that land around the SkyTrain and so you know maybe one option is we we build schools within some of these uh, residential structures or corporate structures. Okay so where can parents find out more information about this then if they haven't already heard or they would like to participate? So all parents would have received an email on Monday and, you know, I encourage everyone to check their junk folders. We've already received 6,000 responses. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And so I, I um, and, and the vast majority have been parents. Um, I think 60% have been families. And so check your junk folder. And if you haven't received an email, uh, let your, talk to your principal or your school and um, they can ensure that you get the link. Okay. Well, good to hear. I'm fascinated to find out what the results are. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. That's Rachinder Matthew, Associate Director of Communications at the Surrey School District. So they realize that it's not realistic to expect that enough schools are going to be built fast enough to deal with the overpopulation of kids that they've got right now in portables in Surrey. And so they need to try other mitigation measures too. So they've embarked on this survey process of of asking parents, how do you feel about things like extending school hours? Like that would be managing the building time better, um, implementing multiple semesters, like a tri-semester system or uh, changing the hours of the school day or constructing prefabricated classrooms and buildings. So maybe even busing students to outside of their immediate neighborhoods. This is an important part of this process because, yeah, all these schools will not be built in time to deal with all the kids that are in Surrey. So what are the other things that they can do? As a parent, how would you feel about that? Which one of those would you find, I guess the way to put it is, least objectionable? Which one do you think, yeah, you know what, that would work. That might be okay. Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. It is a big money mystery. Where is Greg Martell? Now, Martell is a mortgage broker who was based in Victoria, but is now a wanted man with hundreds of millions of dollars missing and hundreds of investors who may have been victim to a Ponzi scheme. So how did this happen? How did he get away? Well, there's been fascinating coverage of this uh, with Gordon Hoekstra, who's investigative reporter for the Vancouver Sun. You can check out his work at VancouverSun.com, and he joins us now to talk about it. Gordon, thanks for being here. Thanks, Simi. Good morning. What do we know about where Greg Martell is right now? Well, the last of his known whereabouts was in Thailand. Uh, That's known through some court proceedings in which he became involved with one of his investors, and and that investor kind of cut a side deal with him and uh, and ended up with one of his properties in Las Vegas. But as a result of that, uh, it's purported that he was uh, sort of got caught there when his visa was ending, and then after whatever transactions happened with his investor, that he uh, he left after that. So that was, 
I think, back at the end of August or so. So that's the last known whereabouts of, of him. Okay, so when did suspicions first start to get raised that there was something weird going on here with the money? Uh, that took place probably in the fall of 2022 when when investors started to uh, who had asked you know either for their money back or were expecting uh, you know interest payments and uh, they were sort of late in coming and then they started to get nervous and then of course you know people want their then they want their principal back and you know that that sort of went on for a while and I, I guess he was telling them that they were going to get their money they were going to get their money and some people didn't and so then people eventually launched uh some civil suits you know to get get their money back that would have been in i think the earliest one was in february of 2023 and then a bunch happened after that in the spring so how much money are we talking about here and how many people Right now, uh, there's, I mean, more than 800, I think near near 900 uh, that have claims into the receiver of, uh, I think it's $312 million missing. Wow, that's a lot of money. How did it get to this point, Gordon? Like on your investigations here, were there any concerns ever raised about this kind of the work that was being done? Uh, you know, that's, that's a really good question. It seems like until the fall, uh, it doesn't look like it, you know, if, if people had concerns, they, they certainly didn't raise that, you know, publicly through some forum, like, like the courts or a regulator. I mean, I mean, this is an alleged Ponzi scheme at this point, but in Ponzi schemes, that that's, you know, that's what happens is that until they, you have to have, you know, enough money coming in to, to keep the money rolling out, you know, at least in some form and either in your interest payments or your, or your returns or whatever. But as soon as that kind of the tap turns off or it doesn't, there's not enough money flowing in, it kind of collapses suddenly because people become aware all of a sudden what's going on. I mean, that's what took place, you know, in the very famous Madoff scheme of and in other schemes. Yeah, exactly. So what do we know about um, Greg Martell's kind of lifestyle that he was living? Uh, you know, according to the receiver and, you know, and, and others who have some knowledge, you know, uh, you know, he was living a pretty high lifestyle, you know, uh, you know, he had you know, owned a number of expensive properties. Uh, apparently he was flying, you know, by private jet between where he was living in the in the in the in the Newport Beach area, which is south of L.A., uh, you know, driving fancy cars, going out to, uh, you know, high-end events and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, you know, he owned this one house in sort of north of the San Diego area, you know, at one point that had, you know, like an infinity pool and this, you know, like this incredible view of the of the valley. And uh, yeah, it was, you know, separate chef's quarters and all that kind of thing. Okay, that all sounds very, very fancy. So, as a yes. result of, of as a result of you writing about this, Gordon, have you heard from people who feel like their their money was stolen here? Yeah, no, I have heard some, from some people. I mean, I mean, in this in these cases, I mean, generally people are are loath to speak, you know, about what happened because, of course, they they feel uh, like they've been taken, and, it, and it's a very assaulting thing. And and people have lost significant. Some people have lost significant amounts of money. But I mean, it, it, you know, it seems like you know, as in all of these things in the beginning, like people were getting some returns, and so. Uh, as far as they were concerned, it seemed it seemed like a legitimate investment, you know. And so, until uh, but they, of course, they now they're they're shocked and they're they are you know trying to do everything in their power to get their money back. You know, I mean, the the receiver is trying to track the money down, but as of yet, you know, there there isn't much to show for it. There's a few properties that are mortgaged. They haven't found any. You know, there's lot many bank accounts, but they haven't found much money. And this, so, uh, this was a guy, according to your reporting, too, who was, you know, got a lot of accolades, right? Was getting lauded, winning awards, and you you went through a lot of court records that paints quite a picture of him. Yeah, no, he, you know, certainly it seems like ha- you know had one of those you know stories where he started in the kind of got involved in the in the, in the I guess what you would call it, generally the financial world, and he, I think he worked in in banking for a little while, and then he worked for a mortgage brokerage, started his own firm you know, was, you know, named as, you know, best newcomer in, in, the, in the mortgage world in Canada, I think in 2009, you know, it seemed like he was doing a good business, you know, I mean, apparently he had a number of offices and, you know, he was, you know, giving coaching courses on mortgages, you know, at some point it seems like, you know, he, he started thinking about sort of getting involved in sort of like 
tech startups and trying to sort of shift his business into sort of some kind of a uh, you know a bigger thing and uh, and, uh, and eventually moved to California and launched a mortgage brokerage business there and then and then and started a sort of a car sharing uh, a tech app and all that kind of stuff so you know I guess we'll if once if we can find out what happened to the money then we'll know how much of it went there and how much of it was spent elsewhere. But you just said, like, and, and your reporting was showing that the receiver doesn't even know where the money is. Like, there is no sign of the money. Well, they, they have, you know, they have, they have bank accounts and they have to, you know, they have to get, the, you know, they have to investigate all those and you have to go through certain procedures to get access to that information. Um, but, I mean, there are, there are new, he has numerous companies he started, like, I don't know, something like nine or ten at least. There's probably, there could be more. And so you have to track all that money um, and, so far, you know, that's just a whole process to sort of check where things went and, and, and what happened to it. So until they do that, they're not going to have a clear idea if there's any possibility that there is any money left over or where it went. Wow, what a mystery. Great piece, though, Gordon. Thanks so much for talking to us about it this morning. Okay, thanks, Siri. Appreciate that. Gordon Hoekstra is an investigative reporter for the Vancouver Sun. You can read his piece uh, about... Uh, Greg Martell, who was a mortgage broker and who's now, I guess, on the run, has gone missing. Yeah, but so is about $300 million of clients' money. At least that's what the clients say. And they don't know what they're going to get back, if anything. It does sound at this point like some kind of alleged Ponzi scheme, as Gordon pointed out. Anyway, read all about it, and we'll certainly keep you updated on that. And also, a lot of people lost money, too. If you've had that happen to you, let us know. Simi at cknw.com.